you're listening to Love and Science on BCFM, and I bet you thought you weren't, uh, because we've just had uh, one or two uh, technical difficulties uh, with the studio, but it's all fixed now. So um, we're all filled with joy and dancing, <laughs> and it's great to be uh, back with you. Uh, so you're listening to Love and Science here on BCFM 93.2 FM and bcfmradio.com, and it is always a great pleasure uh, to have your company on Monday afternoons. Uh, I'm Malcolm Love, and I'm joined, as usual, by the amazing Andrew Glester. Oh, it's me. Hey. It's amazing. Hey. The, uh, uh, incredible oh. Uh, oh. Uh, Hannah Bestwick. Thank you very much. And um, I'm really uh, pleased uh, also to have um, Rosie McCullum and Jenny French with us today. Rosie's Hi. a... Hello. R- hello, hello, both. Uh, Rosie, of course, <laughs> you're a, an old friend of the show. You've been on a yeah. few times, haven't you? Yeah, I've been on a couple of times before. It's yeah. good to be back. It's nice to have you back. And Jenny, I think it's your first time with us. Yeah, it is. And yeah. the thing you share in common is that you're both currently involved with the Bristol Festival of Nature, is that? Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, Rosie, if I come to you first, I think you're actually working for them or you're Yeah, involved? so... Um, yeah, I've been working with the Bristol Natural History Consortium who organised the festival for a few months. Um, and yeah, I've just been helping them put stuff together. So we've got the Festival of Nature coming up this weekend around oh, Bristol Harbourside. Very good. Um, Saturday and Sunday. And it's all free and it's all a big uh, celebration of the natural world. And there's loads of organisations there like uh, the Wildlife Trust, RSPB, um, Bris, uh, British Ornithological Society. Well thing. said. Yeah, so I was trying yeah, to get Monday that afternoon, <laughs> Ornithological Society. And, and uh, what, what kinds of things happen at the festival? Oh, of there's nature? loads. So the different organisations have different stalls where they've got different activities going on. Um, they like so we had the one in Bath last weekend. We had some like live massive stick insects and fossils and uh, making like bees out of pine cones and things like that. Um, and then we've got like food and performances. There's this kind of choose your own adventure um, kind of play interactive play from researchers from Oxford University about mm. the fate of the cloud of leopards. So you're responsible for what happens with this leopard. Um, and yeah, we've got music and. And when's it happening? So it's ten to six on Saturday and Sunday around right. Bristol Harbour. Saturday and Sunday coming. Yes, fantastic. Yeah, ah, that's really good. Thanks. Well, we'll we'll come back to you in in, in a bit, Rosie. Thank Jenny, you're involved. Well, tell us tell us your involvement. With okay, it. so um, I will be in the UE tent um, doing uh, having a photography exhibition because for my project I've been working on um, a photography competition. It was open for about a month and it closed last week. Um, and so I'll be why, why tell us why you were doing this. So I'm really interested in seeing how photography um, helps local. people people get into the local nature and try and appreciate it Um, so I invited um, a lot of people from local regions of Bristol and Bath to take pictures of their local area like all the nature and wildlife in their local area and then submit photos to my competition it was called capturing nature Um, yeah so I'm going to be displaying the five finalists um, at in the UE tent um, which will be in Millennium Square at the Festival of Nature on the Saturday and the Sunday. Oh, right. Um, okay. And, yeah. uh, and, and how many people entered this competition? I had um, just under 25 entries. Oh, right. Uh, which was really good. I didn't. Yeah. I, I wasn't really sure how many was, like, I was expecting because it's just... I was doing it with the uh, Bristol Natural History Consortium. Yeah. Um, but 
it was basically just me running it, and I didn't know how how many people would um, would enter. But yeah. um, I kind of like hit on Facebook and just like posted all over Facebook um, in different natural history sort of groups. And how do people get their photos to you? Presumably on online. Uh, yeah. So there was um, a link to a form. Um, then you fill in the form, and then after the form, um, after you filled in the form, you send it to a email address. So it's all online, um, and it's all completely anonymous. Uh, not anonymous, sorry, but um, it was all completely like secure and things like that. And uh, um, and what was the brief that you gave? to people uh, just to photograph nature in Bristol and Bath really um, just because and then I'm gonna obviously like display it so I wanted it to be relevant to the people of Bristol and Bath yeah uh, when they'd be viewing the photos so they might think oh that's really nice I didn't know you could get like deer in Bristol or something like that yeah, so, yeah. so yeah often to be seeing the Boston Tea Party yes <laughs> Um, by the way, talking about, and this is, this is a very dubious link here, talking about Boston Tea Party, they've done something very interesting, Hannah, I think you noticed. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys know this as well, but uh, Boston Tea Party are going to ban all uh, non-reusable non cups. If that makes sense, the disposable takeaway cups you get for your tea and coffee, they're not going to allow you to use those anymore. Mm. Uh, they're not going to provide them. So if you want to get a, a tea or a coffee uh, to take away, you have to either buy a keep cup there and then or put down a deposit for one and hand it back in at another store. Oh, She's quite interesting. Yeah, she's good. Own, or, ta right? or take your own. Yeah, I'm you can. Oh, sorry, <coughs> you can take your own as well yeah, if you're yeah, like that. Yeah. I have my own one, so I take mine in there. Well, because <laughs> yeah. I'm like that. Yeah, I have my own as well. Yeah. Yes, Becky bought me one a few very weeks nice. ago. I haven't had a chance to use it yet. I shall go to the Boston Tea Party. I think you can do that anyway. Just as for well. that very thing. Anyway, <laughs> that's enough advertising for the Boston Tea Party. Uh, back to, back to Jenny. So um, tell us again where we can see the pictures submitted for the, the competition. So I'll be in the UE Breast store tent um, in Millennium Square. I think it's really, really close to the big silver ball, which yep. is the planetarium for We the Curious. Um, and I'm on like the left-hand corner with okay. um, five photos. And I'll, I've made a, a cool banner, so you can look for that. It's called Capturing Nature Photography Competition. Fantastic. And what happens if you win? If, if my entry wins? Uh, um, yeah. No, no, I'm lying. I didn't enter at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the winner is voted for by the public. So yeah, you can come and vote on the photos as well. Great. I forgot about that. Um, and then the winner um, wins a £30 Amazon voucher, which you can spend on like, photography equipment or anything that Amazon has to offer, which is a lot. So it's right. really cool. Yeah. yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Now, um, if you, you were to list the names of astronauts, um, I don't know uh, where you, Neil Armstrong's going to be doing quite well, Buzz Aldrin quite well. Um, Andrew's going to remember Alan Bean, who sadly uh, died uh, yesterday. I said erroneously, actually, that um, Alan Bean, the uh, astronaut, uh, died yesterday. In fact, he died on the 26th of uh, May. It was just uh, la last week, but a, a very sad loss. And, um, Andrew, you obviously would naturally go... Uh, to you to uh, tell us a little bit about part, not least of which, because you you met him. I did. Yes. Yeah. Where, where, how was that? Well, what, um, what, how did that come about? Uh, well, yeah. How did it come about? Well, I don't, do you know? I, I I've lived for many years as a five-year-old, and my favourite <laughs> astronaut has <laughs> always been Alan Bean. Right? Really? Yeah. Because um, I'm five, and so I have a favourite <laughs> astronaut, and also because. Um, 
he's he had this experience on the moon where he he was the fourth man to walk on the moon, right? Yeah, I am answering your question, Malcolm. <laughs> and uh, he's the fourth man to walk on the moon, uh, which means the first two were Neil and Buzz. Yeah. Buzz was the first, Neil was the second. No, Neil was the first, uh, Buzz was yeah, the second. Yeah, that's yeah. what Buzz wanted. Yes, yeah. yes. And then the second one, the first one out on the ladder on Apollo 12 was Pete Conrad, and the second one out on the ladder on Apollo 12 was yeah. Alan Bean. Yeah. Now, they all had these Hasselblad cameras attached to the front of their spacesuits to take photos while on the moon. Yeah. And Alan Bean turned towards the sun, um, as you would do, because, you know, you've got a visor on, it's fine, and um, didn't realise that what happened when he did that was that it fried, the sun fried the film in his camera. Oh, so yeah. he came back from the moon, went to get all the photographs yeah. developed. I don't think he went to his local yeah. photograph place. I think NASA <laughs> did it for him. And, um, and discovered that There's there was nothing, nothing there. there. Yeah, and I did go. I really did. Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are yeah. photographs of him on the moon because Pete yes. Conrad took them. But yes. No photos. There's of no Pete photos Conrad. of. Con oh no, yeah. of course. Um, so I, I say so, uh, but it is a period of of sort of ten or eleven years in between these two things happening. But he retired from being an astronaut, and became an artist. Yes. And I th I like to think that those two things are are, li are linked because he spent the rest of his time being an artist painting the experiences he and his friends had on the moon yeah. and space. And I, I just like to think that there's, there's some sort of link between him not having the photographic evidence or their photographic memories and then wanting to, to paint them. And his, his work is incredible. Obviously, he started in, I think, 1981 when he retired from NASA, having been commander of um, Skylab, which was like the forerunner to the International Space Station. Yeah. And... Um, He's, it, yeah, his work has just got better and better and better and better. And uh, I, anyway, the reason why I started that was because you asked me how I came to meet him. Yeah. And the answer is he's actually the second person that I ever interviewed. And it was in 2013. I didn't really know anything at all about anything to do with interviewing. The first person I'd interview was my friend, and who was the director of Manchester Science Festival. And I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do a trial run with her. That was great. And then I sent an email, because Alan Bean was coming to the UK to do a talk in uh, Pont Pontefract in Yorkshire. And um, I thought, well, you know, I'll ask. So I sent an email saying, would it be possible for me to interview Alan Bean? And I got an email back saying, yes, that would be OK. And I, I, my, <laughs> my wife's probably listening. She, she will attest to this. I ran around the house for about five to ten minutes <laughs> just in, in celebration and then realised, of course, that I would have to actually interview him. And I, I didn't know how to do that. Um, but then I got another email from them saying uh, that he would only answer one question. I thought, well, that's great, because it was only an excuse to meet him, really. I didn't really want to interview him. And, um, and then I, I, as it did take the day got nearer, I got more emails from the organisers saying, very strictly, one question only. One question only, mm. very strict. And then I met him in um, <clears throat> a school, a primary school library, where he was doing the talk in the primary school, near Pontefract. And... It, the only place where it was available to do an interview with him was in the library. So you can imagine it's a primary school library, so all the tables are quite low and the chairs yeah. are quite low. And I'm waiting outside this library to go and meet my absolute hero. And uh, they're all saying to me, still, you've got one question, strictly one question. So they take me in 
lead me over to the table where uh, Apollo 12 astronaut, fourth man to walk on the moon, Alan Boone is sitting there, and they say, this is Andrew, um, this is Alan, and I said, yes, I know, and he said, uh, they said he's got one question, and Alan Boone turned and said, why? And they said, well, because he's only got one question. And he said, well, how long is it before my talk? And he said, they said, 45 minutes. And he said, well, sit down, let's have a chat. So I had 45 uh, minutes with Alan Bean. Very good. And um, just a lovely, lovely man. I mean, brilliant, kind, thoughtful. Everything he said was from thinking about it from everybody else's perspective. I mean, uh, astronauts are, are kind of famous for, for being like that, not very... Yeah. Um, not, not so egotistical. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You know, it was, it was obviously it was the first time I'd spoken to an astronaut. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, well, it's just a, a, a deeply wonderful man, yeah. really. Yeah. And, uh, it is a very. A, a, he lived an incredible life. You yeah. Know? So you can tell that by the, the way uh, you you talk about him. He obviously had quite a, a, a big impact yeah. on him. Let's have a listen to uh, a bit of your interview with him now. And uh, he's talking about having gone into um, uh, just basically taking up painting. Yeah. Just before yeah. you do, when yeah. you d right at the end of this, it's about three or four minutes. At the end, there's a little bit of audio from the lunar surface and it's Pete, Conrad and Alan Bean and you can just tell how excited they are just before they get the go-ahead from NASA to go out onto the moon surface. All right, we'll listen out for that and this is um, Andrew's interview or part of his interview with Alan Bean. As I tell my astronaut friends, I'm not a scientist anymore. I'm an artist. So now I, that's how I think about it and so when I'm planning a painting I usually am telling a story that I want to be remembered long after we're gone. And then uh, I build little models so that I can uh, uh, get the lighting and everything right. And then when I uh, start to paint them, I think about what colors I think might be good in this painting for some reason. And then... Uh, I try to paint it that way, and then uh, I have to make sure that I think it looks right, and if it does, then I just hope other people like it too. So that's what artists do. We've never seen a, uh, a pond of water lilies that looked as good as Monet's water lilies. It just isn't, they just don't. Artists do something different. We've never seen, uh, for example, to stick with Monet, I went to look at the Rouen Cathedral, it's a gray granite building. It's gray, <laughs> and the sun rises all through the day till the sun sets. But he painted it all the colors that he could think of that he liked, and we liked those paintings much better, believe me, than standing in front of the Rouen Cathedral and looking at it when it looks like a gray church. I've heard you say before that uh, one of the the best things about being an artist is that it gives you a freedom that you don't get as a pilot of a spacecraft. And I wondered, if you could have that kind of freedom as a pilot of a spacecraft, what would you do with it? Where would you go? My goodness. I guess you'd have to say, uh, where have you not been before? That has appeal. It'd be good to go into space and go back to the moon. But if, if the competition was between going to the moon and Mars, I would immediately say, let's go to Mars. We haven't been there. And if we had been, and then they said, well, we can go there, there, let's try 
a moon of Jupiter, I'd say, well, let's go that place and let's see what's there. So uh, I know that's how I think, and I think most astronauts feel that way. So someday there will be a, a uh, discussion about it. I think we'll end up going back to the moon because it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. And that money is always a problem all the time. So it's never going to be a time in the future where people can say, well, I'll spend uh, uh, this amount, $200 billion to go to the, to the moon, or am I going to spend uh, $800 billion to go to Mars? So it's always going to be like that. I would say save money and go to Mars. Those rocks that wait four and a half billion years for us to come grab them. Think so, huh? Let's go grab them. Stand by, Intrepid. We'll be right with you. Okay, DSI, you guys ought to be spring-loaded. Intrepid, your go for EVA. Alan Bean, the fourth man ever to uh, walk on the moon, who uh, died uh, sadly last week. Um, and uh, as Andrew tells us, a remarkable man with a remarkable uh, character and uh, a delightful uh, lack of uh, ego or egotism, let's say. Everybody's got an ego, otherwise you're in trouble. Um, so uh, we... Um, uh, uh, normally talk uh, about science in the news and behind the news. This week is no exception. And um, we thought, uh, we picked up a story, at least Hannah, I, I know you picked up this story, about the uh, Loch Ness Monster. We're going in search for Sirius. Once again. Once we've done, a, we've done it quite a few times, been yes, searching for old Nessie. That's true. Um, but another study has been launched saying it's going to be looking for evidence of the Loch Ness Monster in Loch Ness, which is the largest body of water in the UK, uh, by volume, not yeah. by, like, surface area. Um, so what they're going to be doing, there's uh, scientists from somewhere, led by Professor Neil Gamel, <laughs> who is from New Zealand. Uh, they're going to be taking samples from the Loch Ness over two, a two-week period, and they're going to send them off to labs in Australia, Denmark, France, and New Zealand for genetic analysis to find out what's in the water. So everything that moves through the water will be sloughing off skin or urine, other things excreted from the body. Uh, we'll leave a DNA print in the water. So if you take some samples, you can test them to find out what's living there. Uh, and the hook of the uh, research is that they may be able to find out if Loch Ness, uh, sorry, if the Loch Ness holds the ne Loch Ness monster. Um, yeah. Now, <laughs> uh, yeah, Professor Gemmel doesn't think he doesn't think realistically that they're going to find the Loch Ness monster. Oh right. Uh, yeah, there's he doesn't he doesn't have high hopes for it, but he thinks they're going to find some other interesting things, maybe some new bacteria that they didn't know was there, and also they're going to assess the. Um, pink salmon population, um, the Pacific pink salmon population. And they could ask them if they've seen it, exactly. of course. Exactly, they could do just that. Um, the, the Loch Ness Monster has a really long history in Scotland. It does bring in a lot of tourism. Like Over a 1,000 people said they've seen it, seen the monster itself, which is supposed to look like a plesiosaur, which is an interesting place for a plesiosaur to be because... Um, rep marine reptiles or like reptiles in water tend to prefer subtropical climates, not... Scotland. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, notoriously lacking in tropicalness uh, up in Scotland. And so 
There were actually one thing that is really interesting is that in 2016 they did some sonar scans at the bottom of the Loch Ness and they thought they found something that was the shape of a Loch Ness monster or a plesiosaur. So they sent down a, a robot, which it doesn't really de doesn't define what robot it was, but the robot dredged up this thing, which actually looked very much like a Loch Ness monster, but it was in fact a discarded prop from a 1970 film called uh, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. So unfortunately, <laughs> they didn't find it that time, but we're going to try again. Uh, it's just amazing. I mean, part of me would really like there to be a Loch Ness monster. Keep part of me wants us to have good evidence as a Loch Ness monster, but not find it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it's just terribly I exciting. It's, <laughs> it's quite fun. You would quite, we quite, we quite like the mysteries. But I'm guessing uh, people's best guesses are uh, why people, why so many people see these things is because they expect to. And uh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, that pre pre um, assumption that you're going to see something is going to lead you to interpret yeah. a lot of things as yeah. exactly what you wanted it to be. Yes, um, it's quite a common psychological thing and, you often see with ghost hunters too. Exactly, large expanses of water provide lots of strange patterns. And yeah, yeah, and I, I always like to think that. Um, well, you know, like the tooth fairy has to put the teeth somewhere, right? Yeah. So maybe it's putting the teeth in Loch Ness, and that's what people are seeing is the tooth fairy going into Loch Ness <laughs> with the teeth and then thinking that that's a monster. Well, and the Easter Bunny is involved as well. I would have thought so. In some capacity, <laughs> I would bet, the yes. collusion. Yes. Uh, an interesting thing that uh to do with the science behind this is um, the reason they're sending the samples to Australia, Denmark, France and New Zealand they'll send them to lots of different labs because if there's then contamination in one of these labs you can rule it out by comparing it to the other labs so if you find something that's like an unknown DNA in one of the samples you can compare to the other labs and see where they, um, whether or not it's in all of them yeah. which in which case it's probably an unknown sample in the Loch Ness, but if it's only in the one, then you can assume that it's a contamination in one of those labs or one wow. of those samples, yeah. And this is all about to happen? Yes. yes it's yes. all it's getting underway. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, we look forward to that with much interest. Um, and uh, stick, sticking with seabirds, well, no, sticking with the sea... With, with, with water. water. Sticking with water yeah, generally. that's the big theme yeah, there. On. Big theme here is water. Um, puffins are in trouble, aren't they? And, yeah. uh, of course, they, uh, the Farne Islands, I, I must admit my ignorance, Farne Islands, I think, are off the coast of Iceland. I think they? they're, um, they're off the coast of the UK. Um, I had a look, and I think they are to the east, um, sort of slightly north of where Newcastle upon Tyne is, yeah. um, off that way. Uh, there's eight islands, and the National Trust have done a survey, a five-year survey, over four of those islands um, to have a look at how many uh, puffins there are, breeding pairs, this year. Now, they arrived four weeks late this year due to the uh, really bad winter we had, uh, you know, with the beast from the east, uh, delaying spring and everything, so they're a bit later. But in total, what they found is that there's about a 12% reduction in breeding pairs across all of the islands. Um, and across the two biggest islands, Brownsman has a reduction of 42%, but Staple, contradictory, contradictorily, uh, yes. has an increase of 18% um, of the breeding pairs, which, um, and then across all the other islands, it averages out a total reduction in, of 12%, which is, which is a great shame, because they're lovely birds. They're very charismatic. Yeah. Very charismatic. Very charismatic. I love that. Well, no, that's, that, I mean, that's a great description yeah. of an animal. I do love that. It's very, very apt, but it springs to mind them doing things like stand-up comedy and... <laughs> <laughs> I kind of do. Has, has everyone seen The Last Jedi? 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so you know Porgs? You probably all know this, but Porgs in The Last Jedi are only in the film because when they were fi- filming it on Skellig Michael, they couldn't get rid of the puffins in the background. <laughs> There's so many puffins in the background that uh, they, they had to come up with this CGI animal to replace them. What, and just them. put... Put a porg over the top of every oh, puffin. Yeah. If you watch it's a it, lot of puffins. Like the, the third time that I saw it in the cinema, the, I noticed that one. in the background you can kind of tell that they're puffins. Oh. But when they're close up, obviously they've CGI'd them. That's really now I'm, I'm imagining loads of puffins in like the green kind of ping pong ball suits. Oh yeah, censoring <laughs> <laughs> suits, green screen. That's fun. Oh, bless them. <laughs> I think um, I think I love puffins so much because they're like so colourful. Like we don't well, we have lots of colourful birds in yeah. like, all over the world, but um, they're also like really inquisitive. So like when they were on the set of the Last Jedi, Jedi they were probably just thinking, oh, if only they weren't so inquisitive, just <laughs> go away, <laughs> leave away us alone. <laughs> yes, absolutely. They also look rather innocent birds, don't they? I mean, it's, yeah. it, not that birds look guilty, generally. It's not what I'm implying. But suspicious you know, they, birds. They're just suspicious. Suspicious. But, yes, they they have that. Kind Yes, there's little, little yeah. short beaks. Um, um, I had a sad thing oh. uh, experience. I went to Iceland some years ago and I went to a place called the Westerman Islands and the ground uh, at that time, anyway, I'm sure it's probably still true, was hot from volcanic activity. And we were talking about the puffins and the, the guide showing us around said, uh, oh, yes, yes, and in fact, um, the locals, they, they kill the puffins and put them on the end of a stick and push them into the, into the hot ash to oh, cook them. Lovely. And it's a local... D- <laughs> we were all, most of us were Brits there, there's about 10 of us, and we were just yeah. absolutely horrified. Well, they're know. listed as you vulnerable s- to extinction, aren't they? Yes, well, uh, this, this was some years ago. As you know, I'm very, very old. Oh, yes, you are, sorry. <laughs> so uh, this, this, uh, yeah. this isn't, in, isn't recent, so I don't wish to offend any Icelanders. What's uh, kind of cute is that the genus name for uh, puffins is fraturcula, which is um, a term meaning little brother, because their outfits, their outfits, sorry, their feathers... Uh, the black and white colouring looks like the um, the outfits that mon- monks would wear back in the day. That's yes. so cute. <laughs> Very cute indeed. You're listening to Love and Science. We talk about science in the news and behind the news on 93.2 uh, FM or, if you want, on bcfmradio.com. And uh, I'm joined uh, by... Jenny and Rosie and Hannah and Andrew and uh, the next story up that we wanted to look at in science news is uh, one that basically it's, it's uh, if you're getting ready to go on your summer holidays you imagine you sit on the beach and you cover yourself in uh, sunscreen um, it might be that what it says on the tin or on the bottle isn't actually what it's going to do um, Hannah, I think again. Sorry, you. Yeah, once more, I'm really sorry. Does anybody, anybody else no, want to talk no, about this? Because no. I've been talking an awful lot today. No, no. You, okay. you, you pitch in, and we'll pitch um, in behind you. So I'm a little bit um, foggy on some of the specific details, but at the moment, in the UK, a manufacturer can claim that its sun cream is water resistant if the SPF drops by as much as 50% after 20 minutes in okay. the water. SPF is just get that uh, clear sun, sun protection, protection factor. factor. So yeah. usually, you'll get a okay. bottle. You'll say it'll say you know SPF 50 if I'm buying and you know I buy the highest concentration because I burn very easily yeah. or it'll say anywhere between like SPF 15 or SPF I think you can get as high as 100 in some places but I, I wonder what that means actually so mm. if you've got SPF and it says right it's 50% does anybody know what that means is it, is it like the percentage of the sun's rays that it I think through I don't know well I'm not sure it's the, the percentage um I don't know if it's 
I don't know what the specific number is for, but um, part of this article that was run by the BBC had an interview with a guy who was saying that if you have um, SPF 50 on and you've spent some time in the water, he was claiming that you would still get up to 98, 96% of um, UV blocked through that uh, protection that you've got on your skin. But that actually, what he said there, he's um, a representative of some um, cosmetic and sun cream producers, which goes against what this report has said um, mm. Now, the report that I'm talking about, which I haven't actually discussed yet, yeah. is uh, run by which? So it's not a scientific um, study in the sense that we know as, as peer-reviewed. It's one run by um, Yeah, it's a, cons a consumer assessment exactly. magazine. So, um, yeah. And it seems to be done to some quite high standards. What they did was they got um, a bunch of um, well-known brands, tested them under salt water and and chlorinated water to, and before and after exposure to that water to see if the SPF uh, changed either side of that. Uh, and what they found that was a lot of them reduced um, hugely up to 59% after just 40 minutes um, in water exposure, which is lower than the um, actual standard. And the reason that this seems to be different to what the manufacturers can say is because manufacturers only have to test their uh, sun cream in tap water, which doesn't have chlorine in it, so it's not, not a good representation of going in a swimming pool. It doesn't have salt in it, so it's not a good representation of going to the beach. And those two, salt water and chlorine, are the ones you're most likely to be exposed to yeah. when you're putting on your sun cream on your yeah, holidays. Either or, yeah. And the issue with this is that it's, it's a misleading of consumers, saying that it's, saying it's water-resistant makes yeah. it seem like it will be yeah. perfectly fine to just yeah. go in and have a dip for an hour or something yeah. and then get out and you'll still be just as protected. Uh, and not just for you, but, of course, parents will be feeling yeah. quite confident, won't they, in putting, putting the on sunscreen their on their children. And yeah. yeah and it's, a um, it's essential to wear sunscreen because exposure to UVA and B uh, can, is, is one of the leading causes of skin cancer, skin melanomas, mm. um, which is, is not... It's, it's a cancer that, that nobody wants. Nobody wants cancer at all, but yeah, um, yeah. it's a really, really high um, incidence one in the UK, yeah, yeah. especially if you're not wearing sun cream. I'm one of those I absolutely hate putting sun cream Oh, really? On. Yeah, I detest it with yeah. a passion. I yes, hate putting it on, but it makes me feel more confident that I'm not going to get burned. I think yes. I've, been quite, I've been burned quite badly before. And um, and every time and now every time I go in the sun I'm like a bit paranoid about getting burnt because I don't like looking like a tomato basically. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. one of the best things cancer research says that the best things to do are to make sure you reapply your cream uh, sun cream regularly to make sure you're getting the protection because one thing that I notice is I touch my face a lot so even if I have to, even if I put some sun cream on I'll often wipe it off again without knowing it. Cool off in the shade so don't always sit in direct sunlight especially between the hottest parts of the day which are um, between 12 and two I think but um, from 11.30 uh, depending on British summer time that you're in at the time um, and also wear protect, uh, just wear clothes basically if you're just wearing a t-shirt or like a hat or something that's even better um, to cover up your skin uh, hey you have no idea how many topless people I've seen in the parks recently <laughs> without sun cream on I'm sure yes. trying to get a tan not but just you, the parks you're, 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 you're putting yourself at risk there and you're you know <laughs> Yeah, no, I, 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 my only problem with uh, sun cream, I like putting it on. I find it a positive experience. Um, but I can't put it on my head. You know, when my hair go sort of is and sort of isn't. <laughs> yeah. um, I can't put it on there. Have so you ever thought what do you mean of wearing you a hat? Um, I, it, it's a bit revolutionary. It, I, I know, it's, it's, it's controversial. <laughs> um, hello, John. You're in the studio. Hello. It's you as well. <laughs> ah, yes. Yeah, John, do you put sun cream... Now, we should just point out... That if you if if you don't have 
<laughs> John's trying to figure out which end of the microphone to talk in. That's <laughs> story of my yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you put do you put sun cream on your head? What are you trying to say? You have to paint a picture first of all. <laughs> I am a baldy, okay? <laughs> Which should be a classification in life. Um, yes, I do. Yeah, put some sunblock on my head, and I often wear a hat as well. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Man, no, absolutely, you've got yeah. to. Yeah. yeah, I've known so many people who've, uh, including my wife, by the way, who's had a melanoma. Yeah, right. on her leg. Well. Uh, just yeah. she's not bald, but um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's my yeah. story. Uh, no, she, so I know lots of people who've had a melanoma, and it's very serious. Yeah, you've got to put yeah, a slap on. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right, so be careful. And uh, so, I mean, basically, the story that from this report is: you, if you've been in the water, you've been in chlorinated water or in seawater, it probably doesn't work anymore. You don't trust that it's water resistant. Again. Put it on yeah. again once yeah, you get yeah, out. Yeah. All right. And we've got a, um, another quick story we'll just touch on, um, uh, which is: uh, it turns out that the ancestors of all the birds that are alive uh, today, um, well, many of them maybe all of them, I'm not qualified to say it's all of them, that they uh, may have survived the asteroid strike that wiped out the rest of their kin by living on the forest floor. I don't know if anybody's seen this. Jenny, you said you, you were yeah, so, uh, looking uh, at this story <laughs> earlier. Yes, yeah, so I've looked at it and um, basically... Uh, we were just discussing as well, like the smaller you were and the more like the more you walked on like the ground and weren't in the trees, then the more likely you were to survive because a lot of the a lot of the forests and things on uh, on Earth were destroyed by the asteroid strike. So if you were living in the trees, then that was terrible for you and you yeah, died. Yeah, so, yeah. so yeah. So um, and a lot of um, so ancestors of ducks, chickens, and ostriches, um, they survived the asteroid strike basically because they were, well, ostriches are obviously flightless, so yeah. they they survived because they could um, they weren't reliant on trees for shelter, um, and they could find food elsewhere basically. So, so this is uh, this is this is quite interesting research because it is a bit of a puzzle. We we know that uh, the, the, the ancestors of birds were dinosaur creatures. And uh, it, how did they put up with something? How did they survive something which destroyed everything else 66 million years ago? It's good to know the ostriches saw it coming and did something about it because they're quite famous. For <laughs> yes, well, so I think they get a wait. bad rep, those ostriches. But they can run really fast, so maybe they can oh, run yeah. away from the strike. I don't yes. know if it, how many strikes were happening at the yeah. time, but um, <laughs> they could probably run away from it, maybe. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's just do a, a, a check. Jenny French uh, and uh, uh, Rosie McCullum, you're both uh, with the um, uh, working with the Bristol Festival of Nature at the yep, moment. Yep. Jenny, you've got an exhibition which we can go look at. Yep. And uh, and Rosie, just to remind people, uh, this coming weekend, Saturday and yep, Sunday. Yeah. So Saturday and Sunday, the ninth and tenth of June. It's free. It's all day. Um, Bristol Harbour side around Millennium Square. Brilliant. So come down and have fun. All right, that's great. Awesome. And thank you two for joining us for the show. And I just have to ask John Ford, is there anything that we uh, forgot to mention this week? I, I, I've got a long list of my own. Goodness knows what your list is like. Oh, huge, huge. There's loads. Um, but on, on the subject of um, sun cream, uh, today in 1872, the process for making what do you think was invented by a fellow called Robert Cheeseborough. He was English. Uh, he emigrated to America back then. He invented it there, but we'll claim it is our own, and it's still a, fa a, a very famous brand. 
it's not, cra- it's it's not craft cheese, is it? No, I said the clue was in the sun, <laughs> the sun cream. If you um, put cheese on your head, well, <laughs> well, I well, Vaseline. What oh, I do in the privacy of my own really? garden. Vaseline. Vaseline oh. was invented on this day in 1872. Yeah, oh, it's a go. great product. Yes, I'm sure it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Other petroleum jelly uh, products are available, as they say. Yes. Um, yeah, this day, 1872. <laughs> yes. I mean, apparently, it's a very good moisturiser. You slather yourself in Vaseline. You don't need anything more expensive. So yeah, I'm told. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a whole load of other things that you've forgotten to mention that happened on this day. I'll cover them after four o'clock. Oh, All you right. will. Thank you very much. Okay. Oh, well, we're, we're out of time, sadly. So uh, we uh, have to uh, say goodbye. Uh, so uh, from Jenny, Rosie, Hannah, uh, Andrew and me, thank you very much for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you again next week.